This is Glenn Healy. Hi, this is Braden Holpe. This is Daryl Sutter. Hi, this is Brian Burke. This is Jordan Tutu. This is Keith Morrison. This is Kelly Rudy. Hi, this is Scott Hartnell. Hey, everybody. My name is Steel Fleury. This is Tim McAuliffe of Sportsnet, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday. Hope everybody's having a great week. Hope you bundled up. Man, she got chilly awfully quick. Uh, we got a great one on tap for you today. Before we get there, of course, let's get to today's episode sponsors. Jen Gilbert and team for over 45 years since 1976. The dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty have served Lloydminster and the surrounding area. Star Power is what they provide their clients. That's given them seven-day-a-week access uh, because they know big life decisions are not made during office hours. And did you know when it comes to rental properties, they are the biggest licensed residential property management company in the city of Lloydminster. They deal with over 250 rental units. We're talking houses, apartments, and condos. So give them a call today, Coldwell Banker, Cityside Realty, for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Give them a call, 780-875-3343. Kiva Concrete, since 1979, uh, for 42 years, they've been doing business in the area, uh, and they offer all concrete services from residential, decorative, and commercial flat work. I say uh, do a little creeping, creeping. On uh, Instagram, uh, you can check out uh, some of their projects. I always like to go back to the countertops at the you know the Golf Resort, Elk Ridge Resort, or the new patio at Spiro's, which is probably out of service at this point with the weather where we're at. Um, but uh, they got tons of new projects on the go. I was just uh, doing a little creeping, creeping. And uh, um, a couple of new lake lots, a chemical warehouse, farm shop. And uh, I didn't realize it, but the Southside, what used to be the credit union, I assume it still is the credit union, um, got some new concrete as well. So they've been busy. Uh, of course, they specialize in commercial, agriculture, and residential, basement floors, driveways, sidewalks, patios, garage pads, shops, barns, and countertops. Essentially, if you can dream it, they can do it. Give Chris a call today, 780-875-7678. HSI Group, they are the local oil field burners and combustion experts. They can help make sure you have a compliance system working for you. The team also offers security, surveillance, and automation products for residential, commercial, livestock, and agricultural applications. I uh, I see they were teaming up over at the Prophet River uh, new building, putting in some security systems there. So I'll be excited to talk to the boys about that and see... Uh, what they got cooked up for for that building, I can just imagine the amount of security uh, that's going to be had there with, you know, obviously what they do. But uh, if you're looking for security uh, so you can have peace of mind, while well, these guys use technology to give you that peace of mind so you can focus on the things that truly matter, uh, stop in today, 3902 52nd Street, or give Brody or Kim a call at 306-825-6310. Mac Construction, they do business locally. Uh, uh, they've been doing business locally, they, yeah. Here we go. They've been doing business locally for over 12 years, uh, over 100 homes completed. They are design-build uh, operation that has specialized in constructing custom homes, cottages, and RTMs throughout Lloydminster and the communities since 2008. In addition to custom home building, they also do extensive renovations to residences and light commercial work. If you're looking to build your dream house, head to macconstruction.ca and look no further. Uh, Jim Spenrath and the team over at Three Trees Tap and Kitchen. You know, one of the favorites the wife and I like to do is we like to get the uh, the nachos and order them in because they are fantastic. I don't know if you... Uh, have ever tried the nachos at Three Trees? Yeah, it's just a personal favorite. Regardless, and if you stop in and sit down and have a cold sarsaparilla, 
Uh, they got a couple of good beers on tap that uh, are quite delightful and local too. Ripstone Creek from Edgerton or Fourth Meridian here in town. Uh, they got a new one from Siding 14 Brewery from Pinoca. So a great selection. Take your uh, growlers in. You can get them uh, filled including uh, beer, anything on tap, including beers like Guinness. Uh, if you're looking to uh, win a gift card and maybe uh, earn a little off your bill, follow them on social media. They're awarding gift cards every week to, to followers who interact with them. And finally, if you are uh, taking the misses or Mr. O for that matter, uh, call and book a reservation. Don't be this guy, all right? 780-874-7625, and the team will get you uh, know, they'll get you fed and, and hooked up, all right? Uh, if you're looking for any outdoor signage, I suggest heading over to the team at Read and Write. I would hassle Mrs. Deanna Wandler. She's been fantastic with some of the work they've done for SMP. And uh, I would just say give them a call, 306-825-5111. Uh, Gartner Management is a Lloyd Minster-based company specializing in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for a small office or a 6,000-square-foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call, all right? 780-808-5025. And if you're heading into any of these businesses, let them know you heard about them from the podcast, right? Now let's get on that T-Bar 1, Tale of the Tape. Born in 1960, he attained the degree of Doctor of Veterinary Medicine in 1983. He would then join the team at Lloydminster Animal Hospital and eventually become a partner. He served as MLA from 2012 to 2019 for the area of Vermilion Lloydminster. In 2013, he was appointed the Minister for Tourism, Parks, and Recreation. He's a father, husband, volunteer, and community pillar. I'm talking about Richard Starkey. So buckle up. Here we go. February 14th. Our women do not love us today, do they? It is Valentine's Day. I don't know how you signed off on this, but today I am joined by Mr. Richard Stark. So first off, thanks for hopping in. I'm happy to be here. Um, well, basically, like I was just saying, we, we want to talk a little bit about your life. You grew up... Uh, your younger years were in Edmonton. That's correct, yeah. You know, when you go back to the early days, what's what comes to mind? Well, I grew up in, in a family where my parents were both immigrants to Canada. Uh, they had both come from Germany in the early 50s. Uh, they met here in Canada and were married in 1956, and my sister was born a year later, and I was born in 1960. But we grew up in a household where, uh, you know, hard work was really emphasized, especially by my dad. Um, my mom was a homemaker, but that was still a huge, you know, that was a huge commitment to us as, as kids. And she also did lots of volunteer work. In fact, uh, years later, she was recognized as, uh, she received the Canada Volunteer Award. They flew mom and dad down to Ottawa and she had this big ceremony and the whole bit, she still had the medal hanging in, in her living room when she passed away. So the influence of my parents was, you know, a, you know that you worked hard and you, you tried to be, uh, do any job you were assigned, you tried to do. Uh, as best as you possibly could, and they were they were sticklers for that, and uh, and and so I actually grew up speaking German. I spoke German before I spoke English, uh, and uh, you know, I went once you know you started going to school and everything. Of course, you, your English then became predominant, but but in our home, uh, we spoke German most of the time. I mean, mom and dad had only been in the country for less than a decade. So it was uh, it was an interesting time, uh, but you know, very much uh, 
you know, small uh, small house in, 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 you know, the Calder neighborhood in, in uh, Ed- North Edmonton. And then we moved over to Kensington because we needed a little bit bigger house. And uh, we were in Kensington. And actually, that's where I grew up. And my mom lived there uh, until she passed away uh, eight years ago. So uh, that was that was home. And our, our home life was dominated by, by school and by music. You know, mom and dad were absolutely adamant that we had to put our focus into schoolwork. And, uh, and the second thing that we did very actively was music. I, I played both the electric organ and the accordion. As, as a child and, and actually, you know, entered music festivals and the whole bit every year. And uh, unfortunately, I, I enjoyed sports. I was never all that good at any of them, but I enjoyed them. And, and the only, you know, the only thing I did major in terms of sports as a kid is I spent one year playing soccer um, for, a, uh, for a, German, uh, a German sports club in Edmonton. There was a, a club called the Friends of Berlin. And this was a club that was mostly expatriate, Germans that came from Berlin, and we happened to be very good friends with the with the president of the club and he, his son, uh, like uh, David, their their son was basically same age that I was, and Dave was on the team, and Mr. Pohl was uh, was uh, coaching, and so uh, so they invited me to play, and that this was mom and dad were not very sure about this, but uh, played one season. I had a ball, absolutely loved it, and, and we crushed the rest of the league. I mean, and the funny thing was is that our team, even though we were sponsored by this German sports club, I think Dave and I were the only two Germans on the, or kids of German descent on the team. We had Ukrainian kids and Polish kids and Chinese kids and Canadian, you know, kids that had been three generations in Canada. It was hilarious. We, we had a very diverse team, but we were good. So a man of your stature never got convinced to go into any other sport? Uh, well, I mean, people... Tell the to, listeners how tall you... How tall you? Well, I'm 6'6", I'm, I'm six, six. But, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a lousy basketball player. I'm just, I'm really lousy at it. I, I mean, I played intramural sports. I'm a lousy you, basketball player too. I don't think any team's you, coming to grab me. You have an excuse. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, no, I, I, well, I, I, re, I remember when I was in vet school, we, the, there, were, there were three of us in first year um, that were all 6'4 and better that signed up for our uh, intramural basketball team for, a vet, for the veterinary college. And we had a guy in third year who played collegiate basketball for the Huskies, for University of Saskatchewan. And he saw the three of us and he said, oh, finally, I got some tall guys. And he sent us out, you know, the starting, you know, three forwards. And I think after about five minutes, we were down 25 points or something like that. And, and he called a timeout and, and he pulled, pulled us off the court and he said, you guys have to be the worst basketball players I have ever seen. And I thought, gee, thanks, Stu. You know, really nice of you to say that. But... Uh, yeah, no, uh, basketball, uh, nope. Uh, hockey, oh, I wish I, I wish I could play hockey better, uh, but I don't skate particularly well. And I didn't really start playing hockey to any extent until I got to university. And fortunately, both at the U of A and at U of S, in the intramural leagues, they would have different tiers of hockey. And I was in the anklers. I was in the anklers at U of A, and then in U of S, they called it the ankle benders. And I was in the ankle benders. <laughs> and I was even one of the lousier guys in the ankle benders. Uh, but I had I, I had a ball. I mean, I loved it. As long as you're having oh, fun. Oh, God, we had fun. Yeah, no, it was great fun, but I'm, I'm a terrible hockey player. Um, 
going back to your parents sure. com, coming from uh, that 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 was awesome to get Mr. Stark talking about ankle benders. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Go back to your parents um, immigrating from Germany. Did you ever talk to them about the years prior to coming to Canada? Yeah, um, we did. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I can tell you that that mom and dad had sort of somewhat different pathways to come to Canada. Um, my mom was actually born in Ukraine. She, she, she's of German descent and she was born in a, and this was commonplace in the 1920s. She was born in a village of Ger- German Lutherans in the Southern Ukraine. And when Stalin rose to power, Stalin decided, you know, that he really didn't want these Germans there anymore. And so through a series of, of, uh, purges, essentially, he, drove the Germans out of Ukraine. My, my, my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, who I never met, uh, in 1936, Russian soldiers rolled into her village in trucks and all of the men 16 years of age and older were loaded into these trucks and hauled off and they were never seen or heard from taken again. Taken into the gulag. They, they were taken to the gulag, basically. So that's what happened to my grandfather. And uh, like I, I have his middle name, my middle name, Carl, is, is his first name. And... Um, and, and that was, and then mom spent a good part of her time basically staying one step ahead of the Red Army. In the World War II, they were running from the Red Army to, you know, escape being captured because they heard full well what the advancing Red Army was doing to Germans, right? My dad um, was born and raised uh, just on the outskirts of Dresden in what, what was at, for a time East Germany, but in Dresden, which is this absolutely gorgeous city, which of course got horrendously firebombed in February of 1945. But my dad wasn't there in 1945 because my dad as a 15-year-old had been conscripted and handed a rifle and said, the Russians are that away, go, and, and was basically sent off to the Russian front as a 15-year-old child soldier. So mom and dad didn't talk a whole lot about some of their experiences, especially through the war. That, that, was, that was a time that they didn't, they didn't talk about, and they didn't talk a lot to us about it. Uh, we heard other stories that were not necessarily related to the war. Um, my dad uh, talked a little bit about his time as an apprentice, getting his... Um, uh, the, the word for it is Meisterbrief. That's the, the, it's, the, it's essentially a uh, journeyman certificate. But in, in, in Germany, um, uh, uh, professions or trades like being a butcher are held in, in very high level, and as, as many trades are in Germany. And my dad attained his Meisterbrief, his, his journeyman certificate, in being a meat cutter, being a butcher. But Germany in the 1950s, didn't have a whole lot of need for butchers. There just wasn't a whole lot of meat around. And uh, my dad had always had this dream of going to North America. He had read, he'd read basically every book that had been written by this author named Karl May. He was a German author who had the same hometown as where my dad was born. My dad was born just outside Dresden in this tiny little place called Radebeul. And Radebeul was the hometown of Karl May. So my dad had read every Karl May book that there was. And Karl May wrote about North America. He wrote about, and, and most of what he wrote was pure total fiction because he'd never been to North America. But he talked about, you know, you know, well, for him, it was called Cowboys and Indians. You know, that was what he was writing. And dad had, written, dad had read all those books. And he had, of course, this very romantic picture of what North America was like, especially Canada. 
And so he came to Canada as a result of that. Uh, my mom came to Canada because my, her younger sister, my aunt Clara, had fallen in love with uh, a young man who was farming near Barhead, Alberta. And they were actually fully ready to go and they had all the papers ready to go to emigrate to Argentina. Mom and my, my mom, my uncle, my grandmother, they were all going to go to Argentina. And then when my Aunt Clara ended up going to Canada to Barhead to, to be with my Uncle Alban, uh, my grandmother said, okay, fine, we're going to Canada too. And my mom was not a happy lady. She was all ready to go to Argentina. Uh, but they ended up coming to Canada too. Mom and dad met here. But in terms of you know, talking about um, some of their experiences, not a lot. I can tell you that, not a lot. I mean, I think there was a lot of things that they just kind of suppressed or pushed sort of to the back of their memories and they, they didn't care to relive them or to share them with either my sister or myself. Yeah, that's fair. I, uh, that's the, the, that stuff is, I mean, hasn't been seen since well that's that's not true though either i just think it's more and more of that generation is no longer here to even talk about it so no. you so you can't hear you can't just no. go down to the local meat store and sit down with no it, it, you're right and and um it's you know every, everybody handles those sorts of traumatic incidents in different ways right and and in the case of my parents uh, they they chose they chose to put their for, they, they, they they chose to put their energies and put their focus on what's in front of them and and what the future was going to be and in their case they put a lot of their focus on my sister and myself uh, my sister I, I mean my sister was also very, she was very good in school. She did very well in school. She um, also did very well in music and musical competitions and that sort of thing. And then my sister, I mean, she became a doctor. She's a physician in Edmonton and she, she's had a very good career as a physician. And um, I was always interested in veterinary, veterinary medicine. And so I ended up going into veterinary medicine. And um, so, you know, mom and dad, you know, dad's a butcher working at Canada Packers for close to 40 years. Um, you know, they raised, they raised two doctors. Um, I think they did okay. Um, how about, they, how about this? What did they try stories aside from back in Germany? Sure. When they come over to Canada, what were some of the lessons they passed down on? Cause I mean, you can try and hide some of the things yeah. that they've seen, Sure. but they would have instilled some things that have probably stuck to you to this day, I yeah. bet. Um, well, both of them, it was show up early. Don't go, don't go home till late and be the hardest working person in between. I mean, that could kind of sum up. And anything they tackled, it wasn't good enough for it to be good enough. For them, it had to be done, you know, as as well as you possibly could do it. You know, they, they absolutely strove for excellence, and, and they they expected the same thing from us. You know, we would we'd come home from school, and I'd say, you know, I got a 95 on a test. And, you know, they'd say, hey, you know, it's really good. Maybe if you work a little harder next time, it can be 100. You know, they'd be happy with the 95. Don't get me wrong. But they'd say, you know, well, that means there's a little bit of room for improvement there still. You know, that was, that, that was, and, and my dad, like, so my dad um, worked at Canada Packers. And that's a union shop. That was a union environment. And, um, you know, what my dad did tell me is that there were times where he, caught flack from some of the union brass for working too hard. 
and embarrassing some of his co-workers. You know, my dad could work faster and better. I mean, he worked in the department in Canada Packers that basically boned out the beef. Like he would get a side of beef on the rail, he'd lay it down on, on, on the table in front of him, and the job of the guys in that department was to carve these sides of beef out, put the meat in one pile, and the bones all went on the conveyor belt in the back. That was dad, dad's job. And I know because I worked in that department on night shift uh, one summer. You could tell which bones my dad had been working on because there was no meat left on them. Like the skill that he had as a butcher that he'd learned in Germany was unbelievable. Like those bones were absolutely picked clean. Like a coyote would have starved to death eating off the carcasses my dad worked on. You know, everybody else, there were chunks of meat here, there and everywhere, but not dads. Dads were just picked clean. And and he could do more of those in, in an hour than anyone else on that table. Like, like, and, and he, and he prided himself on that, that he was more productive and he did a better quality job than anyone else in the department. No one else could touch him. And there were times when some of the union guys said, Hey, Alfred, you know, slow down a little, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of making the other guys look bad, you know? And, uh, you know, same thing, like, uh, he, he wouldn't take a 25 minute coffee break when the coffee breaks were only supposed to be 15 minutes. You know, the, the guys would stretch that a little bit, you know, and, and I noticed that when I was working night shift, you know, the guys would sort of say, you know, coffee was supposed to start at midnight. Well, at five to 12, they were kind of packing up their knives and heading down to the car. And I said, I thought it was 15 minutes. Ah, yeah, nobody keeps track that closely. Uh, My dad wouldn't leave until it was time to go. And he was back up on the table. He'd always be the first one back up to the table. What would he say to the guys when they're like, you're making everybody look bad? He said, he said, I'm hired to do a job. I'm hired to do a job. Now, he was never, he, he was never one of the more popular guys in the union. And, and you know, some of that stuck with me. Like, I, I understand full well the place of organized labor and labor unions. I, I, and they definitely have a role in terms of making sure workers don't get abused, in terms of making sure that workers get a fair wage, that they get reasonable benefits, all of that stuff. I, I get all of that. I have no trouble with any of that, and I think labor unions play an important role in doing that. But as I said to some of my colleagues in the legislature who were, you know, labor union stalwarts, I said, when you grow up in a household and you hear these other stories from your dad about how the union were telling him not to work so hard, how the union was telling him not to show up five minutes early or ten minutes early for work, and how they're giving him a hard time for that, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I can't have a very positive outlook on labor unions when that's what you grew up with in your house, you know. And some of them are sitting there saying, oh, gee. You know, I said, look, I, I said, I get it. You know, you folks see all the good sides of labor unions, and, if, and there are some, and that's good, good for you. You know, but understand that, that there's also a not-so-nice side of labor unions. And, and, you know, like I say, some of the intimidation and some of the bullying that my dad got, well, my dad couldn't be bullied. I mean, there, there was no way you're going to bully this old German guy. You know, that, that, was, that was just not going to happen. Who went to the front lines at 15 years yeah, old. Yeah, that, that wasn't going to happen. Dad, dad was not going to get bullied by anybody. But, you know, just a snide name calling and that sort of thing. You know, that, that, my dad endured that and he just sort of said, well, too bad. You know, this is what I do. Um, mom, mom was no different. Mom was a fiercely, fiercely proud woman. You know, in terms of, you know, anything that she did, you know, any of the volunteer work that she did, you know, she, she worked as, as a, the treasurer, the bookkeeper for the, the talent shows. 
in Edmonton for um, a long, long time. I think it was over 25 years. Long after my sister and I had grown up, left town, you know, you know, most of the time when your kids are out of it, you leave, right? No, mom stuck with it for another 15 years or something like that. And when she did the books and she did it all by hand and none of it was done like on a computer or anything like that, if it didn't balance to the, down to the last penny, mom wasn't satisfied. It had to balance to the penny, you know, it's just the way mom was. So, uh, yeah, no, they, they, they put their efforts very much into what they were doing and, and very much was focused on what we were doing. Can we talk about politics for a few sure. minutes? I know, I know I'm sure. skipping ahead in the story, well, but... We can bounce around. No I, I, I wonder why. Was politics something always on your radar? Because, I mean, you, you go to school, you mm. become a vet, mm. you own your own business, mm. you're very involved in the community. Mm-hmm. I can go down the list of things. Mm. Um, did, were you always attracted to politics? Uh, yes. I mean, short answer, Yes. Uh, and again, part of that was from my mom and dad. I mean, mom and dad had both grown up in an environment where they saw what happened when you lost your, your rights, including the right to vote, right? So when I got interested in politics was sort of in my mid-teens. Um, well, it started even before that. Um, uh, mom and dad um, were friends with a gentleman who eventually got elected to the Alberta legislature with Peter Lougheed in 1971. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Chambers just passed away a couple of years ago. But Tom had emceed my mom's talent show a couple of times. And after he had done that, he he let us know that he was going to run for the legislature with Peter Lougheed and the Progressive Conservative Party. And mom and dad helped out. I mean, they couldn't help out much financially, but they helped out in terms of volunteering and that sort of thing. And I can remember going to a rally that we had at the campaign headquarters. I was nine years old or 10 years old. Let me get this right. I was 10 years old. And we had a rally for for Peter Lougheed at the campaign headquarters. And they decided, well, gee, it'd be sure nice to have some music. And this was in the day before boomboxes and all the rest of it. And it just so happened that, that the fellow who was the president of the Constituency Association was also a good friend of mom's and said, well, Melita Starkey's boy, he, he, he can play the accordion. We, we'll get Melita Starkey uh, to bring, bring her son and he can play accordion in the background and you can sit him in the corner. So here I am playing away in the corner, you know, giving background music and in strolls Peter Lougheed. And I was like, well, 10, 11 years old, it was a 1971 election campaign. And he comes up to me and he shakes my hand and he said, that's real nice music, son. I really enjoyed that. You don't forget stuff like that. And then a few years later, I got involved with uh, an organization called the uh, Texas Parliament of Alberta. I was in that for seven years. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's longest running youth parliament in Canada. And um, over the course of the seven years that I was in it, I served, uh, I was premier. I was uh, alternately with the opposition. I held four or five different cabinet portfolios and learned, uh, you know, about debating and speaking in public and and that sort of thing. And at the same time, while I was going to high school, um, I got very involved in in high school debate, um, starting at about grade 10. And from grade 10 to grade 12, that was my main extracurricular activity. Um, You know, the, the cool kids did sports. The nerds did debate club. And so I was in debate club and, um, and I, the partner that I worked with in grade 11 and grade 12, she was phenomenal. She was such a good researcher. Like she could, she could research anything and find the best quotes and statistics. 
and the two of us would write our speeches and whatnot. And we, we were the top intermediate team in grade 11, and we won the provincial championship in grade 12. Uh, we went to nationals in 1977 in grade 12. And so the public speaking and debating and, and then the youth parliament thing combined with being involved as a, you know, as a member of the Progressive Conservative Party, those things all meshed. And, you know, when I was, you know, still fairly young, I said, you know, I, I think maybe someday I would like to run for political office. And, and my first foray into that actually was really just after coming to Lloyd Minster. I mean, I came to Lloyd Minster in, in the fall of 1983, straight out, or spring of 1983, rather, straight out of vet school. And the fall of 1985, Allison and I had been married for one year. Um, and she came from a family that was also very, very politically involved in her hometown. And I said to her, I remember it was our first anniversary we were celebrating, or, uh, and uh, I said, what would you think of the idea of me running for city council this fall in Lloydminster? And, and she said, I think that'd be great. You should do it. You know, and so I, so I did. And I uh, ran for city council in October of uh, 1985, got elected. Uh, as a 25-year-old, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm still on record as the youngest city councillor that's ever been elected in Lloydminster. And, um, you know, served two terms. Uh, uh, Bill Condro was mayor, and then Pat Gulak was mayor. I served under those mayors. Um, learned a lot about striking compromises, um, working with other people, sometimes where you didn't necessarily agree with what they had to say. Um, municipal politics is I call it untainted by party politics. In municipal politics, you can, there'll be some, some issues you'll be voting with the guy sitting right next to you or the lady sitting right next to you. And then on the next issue, the two of you practically have to be separated because it's going to come to fisticuffs because you disagree so vociferously on an issue. And that was my experience in municipal politics. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. But from 1985, when I was first elected, we had no family, and I wasn't at that point yet a partner in our practice. By the time 1991 came around, Allison and I owned the practice outright. We were the only two owners of the practice, and we had two young boys. And I said, look, it's time for me to step back from politics and focus, focus on family, focus on and my business. family and my business. Yeah. And I did that, and, and, then, and then 20 years later, in 2011, um, you know, there were some political changes happened. Uh, I had been involved uh, at the provincial level with the, uh, with the PC party and, and, and had been a supporter of uh, Doug Cherry and then Steve West and then Lloyd Snellgrove and had, had you, know, you know, helped them. I wasn't right deep into the party politics because I was still pretty busy. Uh, but when 2011 rolled around and Lloyd Snellgrove said, I'm not going to run for another term, which was a surprise because he'd actually won the nomination already. Uh, but um, Lloyd had not supported Alison Redford to be premier. And Alison Redford unexpectedly won the PC leadership. And so Lloyd stepped back. And, he, and, and so now our, our constituency here in Vermilion Lloydminster, we had to find a candidate and find somebody fast. And because we had, uh, we had about two months to find someone. They said, by the end of January, we want all our candidates in place because we know there's going to be a spring election. And so we were all sort of sitting in Vermilion at the Super 8 Hotel looking at each other and saying, well, anybody in the room want to do this job? Like, man, Lloyd's not going to be running. 
And I had been thinking about it, but I, I was waiting to hear what Lloyd's intentions were because, I mean, it was, it, was, it was not a total surprise that Lloyd stepped back. And I was approached, I remember it like it was yesterday, I was approached that night by Ken Baker uh, and by Headley Dental, uh, mayor of Dewberry. And Headley, who had known me for years, and uh, Ken, who had also known me for a lot of years, and they said, "What are you doing? Well, why, why don't you do this? And you know, you could you step back from the vet practice for a while and and maybe do this? And um, you know, I, we we made the decision. I talked to Allison, and we we had actually made the decision some months previous, but it hadn't been made public that that we were actually retiring at the end of that year. That we were selling our shares in the practice, and that we were going to step back from veterinary practice. And this was like literally a month and three days or whatever from, from the date. And so we made some, I made some phone calls. I talked to some people, tried to gauge support. You know, you want to see who, if you did decide to run, who might you, you, who you could count on for support and, um, uh, got a lot of positive feedback on that. And so early in December of 2011 announced that I would be trying to win the nomination because that wasn't a for sure thing. And if I won the nomination, I'd be running for the seat. So, so that's the background. I mean, I, I was always interested in politics and, and always interested in some form of public service. And one of the key things you have to be able to do as a politician is public speaking. And that was never something that I had ever any issue with. I, I, you know, I know for some folks it scares them to death. <laughs> it's not, not a problem for me. Yeah, well, you've been training for it for a sure. long time. Sure. And the story about playing the accordion when uh, walks in, I can't think of the Peter name. Peter Lockheed, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, is, is equivalent to somebody training for the next 15, 20 years in hockey or something when, you know. G- Gordy Howe walks in on Wayne you. Gretzky, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's the same it's the same deal. It, it's, it's, it's like a life-changing moment, right? And... Um, you know, to, to this day, people say, so who are your political mentors? Who are the political people that you look up to that you, you know, try to emulate? And then I said, well, that's easy. Peter Lougheed and Don Masinkowski. I mean, those two guys, because both of them were very good at what they did. They were respected across across political boundaries. I mean, Peter Lougheed and Don Masinkowski, you have to look real hard to find anyone in any political party that says anything negative about either of those two gentlemen. And, um, you know, I got to know Don after coming to Lloyd Minster in the 80s. We, we moved to Lloyd in, well, in 83, and actually the 84 election that got Brian Mulroney elected as prime minister um, happened three days after Allison and I were married. We basically arrived in Lloyd and we, we watched, you know, our first night in our new home. What did we do? We watched the election results, you know, because we were political, uh, politically interested, right? And I can remember, um, you know, working, uh, you know, with, with Don a little bit f- before that election. And then uh, the following spring in 1985, we were in Ottawa and uh, we were, we, no, let me get this right. The, the dates are wrong. There. In 1988, we were in Ottawa. So that was four years later, 1988, we were in Ottawa. I'd, I'd been on city council for three years and had many interactions with Don through that. But uh, we were traveling with Roland, our oldest son, who was three months old. And we, we phoned Don's office and we said, you know, we'd just like to stop by and say hello. We're traveling with our three-month-old, so, I mean, it, it could be a train wreck if we come in. And 
he wouldn't have any of that. We went to his office. I don't know who all he was going to be meeting with that afternoon, but he absolutely cleared the, cleared the deck and he spent an hour and a half with us, chatting with us in his, in his office, you know, on Parliament Hill in, in the center block of, of, of the Parliament buildings. You know, here was a, a guy who never, ever lost the common touch. And Don Mazankowski, I supported him like throughout his time uh, in the legislature or in the House of Commons. And when he retired in 1993, they actually asked me to give the dedication speech at the at the statue that they were unveiling of him in Vegreville. The Vegreville Chamber of Commerce did a bronze statue of Don Mazankowski, and they wanted to have somebody speak at that at that. Um, at that uh, uh, ceremony and I get this phone call and they say Richard we'd, we'd like you to speak at the ceremony and I said I said well, you know I'm honored but I mean good heavens there must be a hundred other people you could have picked and they said yeah but you were kind of first on our list and if you won't do it we'll go to one of those other hundred people so can you do it and I said sure I'll do it and I, I gave the speech it was I mean I think it was an okay speech um, and I remember the next morning, I get a call from Don Mazankowski. And Don saying, you know, Richard, he says, that was a wonderful speech. Thank you so much. Da, 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 da. Now, I need you to run for the federal progressive conservative nomination in the federal riding because I'm not running. And we need a good, strong candidate. We need somebody like you. And... Um, and I said, well, Don, I think I'm too young. I'm only 33. And he just started to laugh. He said, that's how old I was when I first ran and all these other things. And, um, ultimately, I mean, long story short, decided not to, decided the timing just wasn't right in 1993. And then I was asked a couple of other times to run provincially and, and always said, no, I just said, you know, I've got family commitments. I've got business commitments. I want to make sure those are all looked after first. And um, when 2011 rolled around, um, you know, we, we, we decided to retire from practice and, and, uh, um, we, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 our sons were both, you know, out of the house on their way, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, we talked about it and I, I, I talked, you know, first to Allison, I phoned my mom, I phoned both of the, both of the boys and they were both very encouraging of it. Um, uh, and, uh, Al Alistair was taking a poli-sci degree in Calgary. And, uh, he asked me a whole bunch of political questions. You know, you, do you have support? You know, what about fundraising? You know, what about organization? <laughs> All this other stuff. You know, I said, Oh, well, you know, I'm glad we sent you off to university to learn about poli sci, but it was, it was really good. And, uh, their support was really strong right throughout. So it's good. Well, let's talk about your seven years in, in politics, sure. because I know I'm jumping to the very end of it when you're leaving to quote you here, but uh, I'd read an article on you and said, Albertans would be dismayed if they knew just in some ways how dysfunctional this place is. Mm. I was curious what the, I mean, you, you're a guy who served there for mm -hmm. uh, a lot of years. Yeah. Um, and as a younger guy, I'm only 34, mm -hmm. I look at it and I go, I talk to people all the time. I go, like, the way to fix anything is to get involved. Sure. Get involved in politics. That's great. It, I agree 100%. And, and, I, you know, I was asked that question when I announced that I wasn't going to run for a third term. And uh, my, my frustration was that I, I had spent my first term, the first three years of my time, I'd spent as a government member. And we were in the majority. And I spent about half of that time as a cabinet minister. So I was at the big table helping making big decisions. And 
What dismayed me even about that was how dismissive we were of anything that came from the opposition benches, any suggestions, any amendments, anything like that. That, that people, you know, anything that came forward to, from them, and I mean, yeah, sure, a lot of it that they came forward was trying to make us look bad. But there were some amendments or some suggestions that they were making that would have made our legislation better. And a couple of times I said, you know, I kind of actually like this amendment. I think we should, I think we should, you know, seriously consider supporting it. And a couple of times I was told, you know, by people, and they said, yeah, you're new here, aren't you? Because we don't do that. We, we, there's nothing that we, there's nothing that they can put forward that we're going to accept. And I, and I said, well, why? I said, that's just dumb. It doesn't lead to good governance. If we're going to be a good government, we have to support principles of good governance. And they said, yeah, you know, but if we do that, it'll just give them hope. We don't want that. We want to just keep them under our heel all the time. So I thought that was really bad, right? Well, doesn't that sound really bad? Oh, it is. It absolutely sounds horrible. It, it, I agree. So, so fast forward to 2015, the NDP are elected. They've been in our position for years and years, like basically since forever. It's the first time they've ever been elected as a government. And they got elected largely on a promise of doing things differently. We're going to do things differently. We're going to be respectful of the opposition because we know what it's like to sit over there, you know, all these other things. And I thought, wow, great. You know, this is going to, this is going to be kind of fun to watch. You know, I don't, I'm not crazy that I'm over here in the opposition and we're in a third party position. We're not even official opposition, but hey, that's okay. You know, we were sort of the experienced voices in the room. I mean, uh, of the 87 uh, MLAs, 70 of them were rookies. 70 out of 87 had never served in that chamber before. And of those 17 that had any experience, we had eight of them. You know, eight of them were us. You know, so like we had half of the experienced members in the legislature. So I was looking forward to that. And I discovered very early on that the attitude of the sitting government, the, uh, the Rachel Notley government, was pretty much exactly the same as our attitude had been. And that was anything that comes from the opposition benches, we're going to just ignore. We're going to just sort of, play, you know. And, and so that's when I talk about the dysfunctionality of the place. That's what I so, meant. So can you change that? Is that leadership, right? If, if the right person was elected, could you say, listen, guys, we are going to listen to the opposition. We want to make this, but we want to get people talking and moving towards it. Or is it, that it, just, is that, am I uh, like la la land, live on a rock? No, no, it, it is leadership. It absolutely is leadership. And, and it takes a tremendous amount of fortitude to have that willingness to be more bipartisan, okay? It's going to be interesting to see, for example, uh, you know, how, how things operate with Joe Biden as president in the U.S. Because Biden has been a senator, as has been said by many times, for you know better part of his adult life. He's been in Washington for you know, decades. And, but the one, uh, uh, the one reputation that he's developed over that time is his willingness and ability to work with the people in the Republican Party as well as his own Democratic Party. And it's going to be interesting to see if he can carry that into the White House because, uh, I mean, the U.S. is as polarized as it ever has been. Ever been. Yeah. Ever been. I mean, the level of polarization in the U.S. and the, 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 the divide, you know, between uh, the blue and the red, if you like, and, and, and I mean, that Bruce Springsteen commercial during the Super Bowl with the church in Kansas, you know, that was you know, a very powerful commercial. But what he said was absolutely true. I mean, there, there's, there's no middle ground anymore. And 
the worry I have in Alberta and in Canada is that we're headed the same direction. That that you know, we, we there there is no sense of willingness to work with you know with other people. There's no sense of willingness to be cooperative and try to let the best ideas come to the fore. Percolate up. Exactly. You know, in the very first speech I gave in the legislature when I was first elected in 2012, I, I, I remember this line specifically. Towards the end of my speech, I said, people elect us to filter through and sort through ideas. And it shouldn't matter if it's a wild rose idea or an NDP idea or a liberal idea or a progressive conservative idea. What should matter is if it's a good idea. And if it's a good idea, we should adopt it. And it shouldn't matter so much whose idea it was. And um, Harry S. Truman, U.S. president, said, it's amazing what you can accomplish when nobody worries about who gets the credit. Yeah. And we've lost that. We, we've lost that. It, it's now been an environment, and it's getting worse, where we blame the other guy. If there's anything that goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. Um, there's, a, there's an inability to recognize or to acknowledge shortcomings or failings. Um, if you change your mind on something, you know, a, a number of times I, 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 you know, I would say, you know, in our government, I said, you know, look, I think we got that wrong. I think we should just stand up and tell people, look, we got it wrong. We're going to take another look at it and we're going to try another run at it. You do that in business all the time. You try something in business, it's a flop. Your customers tell you usually pretty quickly if it's a total disaster and you say, okay, you know what? We, we got to think this through and try that again. And if you do that, people will respect you because, I mean, politicians, elected people are human, just like, just like everybody. Oh, you guys aren't perfect? Well, we're not perfect, no. And, and, and the sooner that we understand and accept and acknowledge that and be open about it, you know, they say, oh, you know, well, changing your mind on an issue, that's a sign of weakness. You know, flip-flopping, that's a sign of weakness. And I go, no, it isn't. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign that you got the maturity and the self-confidence to say, hey, you know what? Sometimes we screw up and sometimes we do things wrong. And maybe, just maybe, if we listened to people with differing points of view to ours, we would know that we were headed into a wrong direction before we instituted some policy. But if we do the la, 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 and, you know, cover our eyes and ears and don't listen to any dissenting voices, we're going to end up with um, an echo chamber where the only people we talk to are the people who agree with us. And unfortunately, social media makes that worse because social media allows you to insulate yourself. With like-minded people. With like-minded people, right? Yeah. We form these little like I call them echo chambers, where the only people we hear from or that we listen to or only articles we read are the people that already agree with us. Well, one of the fundamental things about politics is you have to try to see if you can get people to vote for you who don't necessarily always agree with you. And um, no, I, I, but, but getting back to your earlier question, Sean, it, it is absolutely about leadership is absolutely about the tone that gets set from the top by the leader. I mean, in our system, whether we like it or not, in our system in Canada with our parliamentary democracy, the leaders of the party are extremely important because they set the tone, they set you know how things get done. And when I ran for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party in 2017, 
that was what I, you know, a lot of what I've just said is what I was telling people as well. I said, we have to be able to do politics differently. We have to be able to govern differently. We have to govern with confidence, but with also with respect. Because those folks across the aisle from us, they got elected by Albertans too. And we represent, if we're in government, we represent the people that elected them too. You know, if they're from Tabor and Tabor voted for another party, or if they're from downtown Edmonton and downtown Edmonton voted for another party, guess what? They live in Alberta. They're Albertans. We represent them too. And chances are pretty good that the guy from Tabor or the lady from Edmonton who's telling us what her constituents think is going to have a better idea of what's going on in their neck of the woods than we know. So we should quit pretending we know everything and that we have all the answers, and we should actually maybe listen to some of the people that could help give us the answers. Uh, politics isn't working that way right now. And so that's when I said, you know, people would be surprised how dysfunctional it is. That's what I was talking about. So how does it get better? Like, in your mind, how do Canadians, Albertans, whatever, mm-hmm. get it better? Americans. It, 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 it's, it's, going to take, it's going to take a lot because we didn't get to where we are now overnight. Uh, we got to where we are now partly because of the incremental shifts in time. These things don't happen yeah. in big leaps. They happen like incrementally. And what we've had progressively is more and more leaders that were less conciliatory, less um, in, in less willing to work with, with the people across the aisle, if you like. Um, I mean, that has really been, been lost in, in Canada in, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, how does it get better? Well, part of it is, is in how we choose our leaders. That, that, is, that is a faster way to reform, is, is getting better leadership and, more, and leadership that is more conciliatory and, and, and more um, cooperative. So uh, wouldn't that mean getting better people into politics oh then? hugely yeah because how can you choose a better leader mm, if they're not sitting there yeah no you're right i mean you know and and you know this is why i always have to kind of laugh and smile when they say oh you know politicians are they make too much money you know oh my god you see how much money those guys are making da 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 well if you pay peanuts you're going to get monkeys you know and and so here you know i i, I remember i remember in in 2013 I was sitting next to the chief financial officer of a mid-sized oil and gas company. And we were just having this conversation back and forth. And she was telling me about the adjustments they had to make when the oil prices went down in 2011, and, and, or, or 2008 rather, and the challenges they had. They had to cut their budget by 30% and, and what she had to go through, the processes and how she made the decisions and you know, who got laid off and what processes and what, you know, what business lines they had to completely jettison and that sort of thing. And I'm listening to her and I go, that's fantastic. With that experience, you should be Minister of Finance. You know, how good would it be to have somebody with that kind of experience, you know, in doing your provincial finances? And she smiled and she said, yeah, there's a problem. You guys don't pay enough. You know, you know here she is for a CFO for a mid-sized oil and gas company. She probably, she's probably making upper six figures. Right? Is she going to take a cut and pay to earning, you know, one hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars a year? I to- agree, but I'm going to argue that that's what public service is all about, right? Because what happens is where we get to, right? Where it's yep. like it's like great. Agreed, agreed. You're, and you're not wrong. I mean, to me, public service is public service, and and that in its in and of itself should be something you aspire to. But 
If you don't remunerate people, you are limiting the people who are prepared to make that financial sacrifice to people who are already wealthy, right? You know, if, if you know if you're already really wealthy and you don't need the money either way, okay, fine, I'll take eight years off or four years off or twelve years off and go do the political thing for four or eight or twelve years, and my businesses will tick along and I'll continue to be have a comfortable living. But you know. Me as an example, well, I had made the decision to step away from veterinary practice, but I didn't have another source of income after I left veterinary practice. You know, if I had not been elected in 2012, would I be doing something else? Yeah, absolutely. I would have found something else to do. But for that seven-year stretch, being a politician was my full-time job. Yeah. And I can tell you, I put in hours doing that job that I hadn't put in since calving season in the 80s and 90s, you know, working in vet practice. I mean, you know, I, I would show up, you know, again, from my dad. I'd show up at the legislature when I was cabinet minister. I, you know, they, they got to know me as the guy who showed up at six. They got to know me as the guy who left after midnight. I'd put in 16, 18-hour days at the legislature. And when I, was, when I left after midnight, I was the last guy out of the building. You know, the only people left in the building were janitors and security guards. How about an, how about another thing they, that I always hear is that uh, going into political service or going into politics, mm -hmm. your family comes under scrutiny. Yes. Yes, they do. Um, they absolutely do. Um, and in, in many cases, it's, it's exceedingly unfair. Um, in many cases, it's, it's unbelievably cruel. And, uh, and it's, um, and you have some people say, well, you know, if you can't stand the heat, don't get in the kitchen in the first place, da, 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 da. Okay, fine. Um, but, um, you know, you, 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 you can't completely shield your family from it. I mean, I certainly had colleagues that did everything they could to, to keep their family, you know, completely insulated from what was going on. But, you know, my, my wife reads the newspaper, my wife goes on, you know, and watches online stories. And, and, you know, she, she knew what was happening to me and she knew what I was being called. And she also knew that she was being watched, you know, when she went to the grocery store, when she went to events, when, you know, what when she was went she, to the grocery store. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She would be, she'd be accosted, you know, feeling, you know, checking on the freshness of the broccoli. She'd be saying, you know, what, what Richard's doing in Edmonton is terrible. You got to tell him that. You know, she 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 had that happen. You know, so uh, no, our, our families are are involved. I mean, my um, my sons, uh, you know, I would say a little bit less so because I mean they're not living at home and and uh, they, you know they've each got their own lives. But uh, uh, I mean, I know you know they're both you know they're both politically engaged enough. They know what's going on and. Uh, um, you know, they chose not to get, you know, involved in some of the fights and debates that would happen in social media. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a team effort. You get elected. It's a team effort. Now I, I have to admit, I was extremely fortunate. I mean, Allison, uh, my wife is, is, well, she's probably a better political mind than I am. I mean, she, she grew up in a very political family. Her, her dad was very involved actually with the Lockheed, the whole building of the PC party under Peter Lockheed. Uh, he acted as campaign manager for several of the MLAs from the Lacombe area. And, uh, 
And so she grew up in that in that environment, in that household. And, and Peter Lougheed was somebody who had spent time sitting in their living room, you know. So, um, and and Allison um, was was you know quite prepared and quite comfortable to you know go to the events and to schmooze with people and to you know be the you know some sometimes sometimes you needed somebody who would come along and and pull you away from a a really difficult conversation you were having you know somebody was, was she kind could of, recognize yeah, it yeah oh yeah in a minute you know and and you know you would might be having a conversation with somebody and they were they were really kind of monopolizing your time and you had a whole room to go around and meet with people and greet people and that sort of thing and she'd come up and she'd you know just tuck in your elbow and says um actually there's somebody over here who needs to or wants to talk to you excuse me she was always very good at it but she was she was perfect at that she did that very well Fast forward 20 years from now, you're going to get, we're all going to get asked a lot about the year 2020, mm. uh, COVID-19, lockdowns, everything going on worldwide. Not Alberta-wide, not Canada-wide, worldwide. Worldwide, yep. What do you think of everything that's been going on? Well, I, I certainly hope we're learning from it, although I'm not I'm not entirely sure that we are. Um I, I I think that this particular virus is is one that has really really challenged our ability to have a coherent uh, response to it. Um, you know, when when we were in veterinary school, I studied virology, I studied epidemiology, I studied immunology. So I have you know the scientific background to understand a lot of what's going on. And even with my background, I have to admit that at times I really wonder what the best course of action is. Um, I think though that in general, and this is, this is speaking very much in general, but in general, the nations in the world that have done the best in terms of minimizing the negative impacts on their economy, but also minimizing the, the illness and death toll. And I mean, and, and we don't even know how bad the illness problem is going to be because you hear more and more now about folks that have chronic COVID infections that for months and months and months later are still not back to normal where they can you know, go back to work or whatever. But in general, the places that have done the best are places that have had very strong leadership, that have treated the virus seriously, who have listened to their to the scientific community, who have you know who have listened to the scientists and taken what the scientists have recommended seriously, and have in some cases taken the necessary and albeit unpopular steps, but have now that we look at it. They have managed to protect not only the health of their people, but also the health of their economy. And I mean, I use as an example, I mean, you know, New Zealand has done extremely well. Australia has done very well. Um, as European country goes, especially, especially densely populated European countries go, uh, Germany has done very well. Um, the countries that have had a, a lot of struggle with this are, are countries, I would say, in a lot of cases where the leaders were um, not really clear and focused in their messaging to the people in terms of what needed to be done and were not effective in terms of ha having that empathy for people 
who were affected by this. And, and so, you know, and this is my personal opinion. Uh, I, I think the former president in the U.S. Um, did a horrible job, just an absolute horrific job. Um, and uh, that he is really the reason, first of all, why the U.S. was so heavily impacted, and to a certain extent, by extension, why Canada, even though it has approached things, I think, in a better way, uh, why we have a lot of struggles in Canada as well is because we have a lot of spillover in terms of the attitudes and in terms of some of the things that are believed from what's being said in the U.S. So, what are people going to say 20 years from now? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I guess I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, it is a, it, it is a pandemic that certainly, um, what, what it will do, interestingly, is how it will change the way we do things. Because there's some things that we change the way we do things because we had to. We're, these changes were necessitated. And when we did, we discovered, whoa. Hey, we, we can keep doing it this way because actually it works. You know, I think for example, just, you know, to pick one example, the idea of flying to a central location somewhere so that eight people can get together in a room for a one hour business meeting and then everybody flying back home Makes again. Makes zero sense. I, I, I think that's going to be a thing of the past. I think, I mean, now that people are comfortable with Zoom and Skype and Teams and you name it, it doesn't make any sense to do it that way. Oh, definitely there's going to be changes like that. Yeah. I mean, spend 10 grand on flights or or what on a well, Zoom and, and, call. Well, and, 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 just, and just the time, you know, j- just the time. I mean, the, the investment of time. I mean, if we're talking about a, a national organization, I mean, most people are basically investing an entire day to make that trip to get to wherever, the meeting in Toronto or the meeting in Winnipeg, whatever it is. So, I mean, that's one thing that's going to change. I mean, um, I, I, I had the laugh. I, I, I read somewhere uh, say, saying, you know, can you imagine that a year ago we would celebrate somebody's birthday by having the guest of honor blow all over the top of a cake and then we'd eat the cake. You know, it says, can you imagine that that's how we used to do things? I mean, are we going to do things like that? Is that going to be what we go back to? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know how, how this year will be viewed. Uh, it, it's been challenging. I mean, for sure. For, you know, my, my, my youngest son and daughter-in-law, um, uh, they, they bought a uh, coffee shop in Lacombe in March of 2019. And um, they were doing very, very well. The coffee shop was popular. Sarah's an outstanding cook. She's very creative. She really does a great job. And Alistair was, was doing you know, quite well as sort of front of the house guy. And um, they, they were doing well. They were busy, was steady, and then, and then COVID hit. And uh, I mean, there, there's just a tiny little coffee shop. I mean, there was yeah. maybe room for 20 people to sit in when it was totally full. Well, if you have to sit at, you know, whatever it is, 15 or 20% capacity, that's like two tables. Well, you know, it, it, it's been tough. It's been really, really tough for them. But I, I give them a lot of credit. They've been incredibly resilient. They've been creative in terms of finding other ways to generate revenue for their little, little business. And um, I think, hopefully, uh, in a year or two, they'll be able to look back at 2020 and just kind of laugh about it and said, well, that was kind of a crazy time, but we got through it and, and we're stronger for it on the, out the other side. I mean, uh, adversity 
sometimes, you know, what do they say? Adversity breeds character. Sometimes it, it certainly does. Let's talk about, uh, you know, we've talked about seven years of your life for quite some time now. Hmm. Um, not that it didn't stem early to childhood, but I mean, you're a local business owner, hmm. right? Like a, a veterinary practice. Yep. Um, what was it about becoming a vet that, that uh, pulled you in? Well, uh, mom and dad say that I was always the kid that dragged home whatever sick cat or sick dog was wandering around the neighborhood and would drag it home and, 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 you know, they would, they would, you know, can we keep them or, you know, can we make them better? And, and uh, yeah, I guess I kind of remember that. And, um, so I was always interested in animals. Um, and I was always interested in science. Like science was something I, 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 I loved, uh, you know, loved working with animals. Um, I, I thought of a couple of other, you know, career choices, but veterinary medicine was, was pretty much always the top of the list. And, um, you know, went to vet school. Um, out of vet school, and especially while I was at vet school, I discovered that my interest was kind of um, a broad range of species. I didn't want to just do small animals, didn't want to just do large animals. I wanted to do mixed practice. Uh, I wanted to do the James Harriet thing, right? You know, where you were looking after anything that walked or crawled through the door. And so I interviewed with four different practices when I was um, in fourth year at vet school. I interviewed in Weyburn, Wetaskiwin, Stetler, and Lloydminster. And um, the Lloydminster practice was the one that was the best fit for me um, in terms of my interest, in terms of what I was most interested in doing, and also in terms of what they were trying to accomplish. I mean, mean, uh, Malcolm Gray and Sue Ashburner were the owners of the practice at that time. And they were looking for somebody. Uh, They had just built a new practice building. And they were really looking for somebody, like Malcolm was mostly interested in cattle. Sue was mostly interested in horses. But they thought that the real potential for growth in that practice was the companion animal side of things, small animals, dogs, and cats. And neither, both of them enjoyed doing them, but, but, and were very capable, but they wanted to focus on the species they really liked working with. And so they wanted somebody whose primary focus would be small animals. And I was quite prepared to do that, although I told them, you know, right from the outset, I don't want to just do dogs and cats. I want to still do horse work and do cattle work. And they said, oh, don't worry, you'll get all that chance too. And, and I did. So, you know, came to Lloyd in 83, um, joined their practice. Uh, it was, it was a good practice. It, it, it did a good job. It did good work. Um, and we had, like I said, we had this brand new building, um, was asked to become a partner in that practice a year later in 1984. Um, I declined at that point because Alison and I had just gotten married and, and I really didn't know, you know, is Alison even going to like it? Lloyd Minster? I really don't have an idea about that. But a year later, when the opportunity to buy in the practice was given to me again, I, I said yes. So I, I bought in as a partner in 1985. Uh, you know, as it turned out, Dr. Ashburner was in the process of planning to leave. I hadn't known that, but she left in 1986. Um, Malcolm Gray practiced for a few more years until 1990, and then he had to uh, retire. He had, he had some problems with his back, so he retired in 1990. So at that point in 1990, Allison bought Malcolm's share of the practice. She's a veterinarian as well. And uh, so Allison and I, in 1990, um, were 100% owners of the practice. And so that gave us the opportunity to make um, some decisions about the direction the practice would take, but it also meant that, you know, all of those decisions were on our, on our back. 
but Allison, um, Allison is a very, very savvy person as far as, as business management goes. She, she really, um, she's very much detail oriented and she, she knew what we needed to do. Um, I was sort of more the kind of big picture guy and, you know, and, and quite often really good business relationships have that sort of combination of things. And, um, in 1992, we hired Daryl Hanley and, uh, uh, that was, you know, that was the best decision we probably ever made because along with hiring Daryl, um, we got Daryl's at that time fiance and then eventually uh, wife, Sonia Colossa, uh, was also, and Sonia became part of the practice in 1994, Daryl and Sonia got married and that same year, Daryl and Sonia, um, bought into the practice. And so for a number of years, it was Allison and I and Daryl and Sonia. So two married couples that ran the veterinary practice. So we'd gone from three veterinarians and for a period of time we were two veterinarians it was just Daryl and me for a while and then we went back to three and then to four and then to five and you know when I left the practice I think even to this date the practice has got eight veterinarians um, now two locations we opened the second location in um, in 2008 <laughs> just before the big economic downturn timing was maybe not the greatest but uh, we, we opened the south side location in 2008 um, we we were awarded uh, Small business and business of the year in 2011. Um, that was that was exciting, um, and I think it was a validation of of um, the work that that all of us had done. I mean, it wasn't just me or Allison. It was it was is all of us, and uh, we created a, a work environment that was really positive. And and I was I was really it was neat to see that like last year the practice won the chamber award for employer of the year, and I thought, wow, that's really good you know because we always tried to create a situation where our employees were family and that that people you know would want to work at our practice and we have very low turnover of staff or we always did um you know many of our veterinarians this is the only clinic they've ever worked at you know i've only ever worked in well prior to retiring i should say but you know lloyd i came out of vet school went to lloyd uh, same with daryl Korenberg. Same with him. And with Trent and Becky, well, they both um, spent some time in New Zealand, but in terms of practices they've worked at here in North America, we're the only ones. So the, their career, they're lifers, right? So, um, you know, and, and the practice was always built on uh, the idea that, that you do the very, very best job you possibly can on behalf of your patient and, and, and you focus on the needs of your patient and you work very hard for the client and you make sure the client knows you're putting forward your best effort. And because it is animals you're dealing with and because we're dealing in medicine, you're not always going to be successful. That's a reality. And, and that's sometimes really hard. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard for anybody in a medical profession to, to, to sometimes come to grips with that, that sometimes you're just not going to be successful. And it's not always, it's not necessarily because of something you did or didn't do. Sometimes there, there are patients that you can't save. There are patients that you can't help. And, um, and that can be frustrating. And I know it can be very, it, it can be very hard on people in the, what I call the caring professions. It can be really hard on them. Um, but we, we, you know, like I say, together we, we built a team and we created a culture, uh, that was very much focused on, on patient care and good client relationships. And, uh, I think 
we were pretty successful with that. Um, I mean, the way our practice grew, I, I think that was part of the reason for it. And uh, uh, so, and, and you know, it, it allowed us to, you know, it allowed us to do things in the community in terms of supporting all manner of events and teams and, you know, you name it. I mean, I, I, I lost track of how many different things, you know, people would come to us and say, you know, can you support this? Can you support that? And like, like any other business we did. And, you know, we also had the very fortunate situation of being in a community where you saw uh, business leaders become real leaders of the community. Uh, you know, people like Ken Kay or Glenn Weir or, um, you know, Dave McCaw or uh, Byron Keebaugh or, you know, Ray Nelson, you know, can't forget Ray. You know, a- any of these people, or, you know, were, were people who, who really showed you what it meant to be a, a leader of an organization, but then that organization had to be something the community could then rely upon, you know, like a, an organization that, that would take a leadership role in the community. And we see that, and we, we, we see that, you know, if you go, you know, when you go to the service sports center, you know, you look at the, the businesses on the pillars or the names of the businesses on the arenas and all that stuff. I mean, this community has a business community that really supports it. So what's one of the best days of your, uh, that you look back? I, am I doing my math and my mental math here correctly? 28 years then of the animal hospital? Yeah, roughly 20. Yeah, it, it was, uh, 28 and a half years. Like I started okay. in, 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 started in May of 83 and my last day was 31st of December of 2011. So what's one of the best days from those years? They, was it opening the second one? Was it the awards? Was there, was there a specific day? Was it taking ownership, <sighs> you and your wife? You know, the best days were, it is going to sound weird, but the best days were the days when you got to the end of the day and you knew you'd done good work for a patient. You know, there's patients that you, you, you sort of take a step back and said, that dog would be dead right now if it wasn't for us. We saved that cow's life. You know, that calf, when it was born, there was no heartbeat or there was no breathing. And that calf is now alive and sucking his mom. And those are, those are good days. I mean, the awards and uh, the awards were wonderful. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I don't, don't, you know, don't mean to downplay them. And, and, and they, they're, they're, they're wonderful recognition of what you do every day. But everybody will tell you, it's not the reason you do this. The reason that we did this was to serve our patients and help our patients and to provide service to our clients. That's, that, that was, and the best days were the days where we felt we had done a really good job of that. Excuse me, I just got a little tickle in my throat here. Open up uh, <coughs> right beside you. Open that up. Um, this is a fridge? Yeah. Oh, oh, how cool is now, that? Now, you can either do the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just the Saskatchewan it. beverage of yeah, choice. I, I see that. I see that. That's marvelous. And maybe when we're done, I might just <laughs> take you up on that. But for now, I just... A bottle of water will that's work. That's perfect, yeah. No, I, how about, how about, how about uh, and I, I don't know if it's easy to talk about her, but you talk about the best and, and being able to, um, yeah, you're, you're talking about saving lives essentially mm. and like really doing some real good. Mm. There had to have been the opposite, the, yep. the yin, the yang, the, yep. the, the, the tough days. Yep. Were there a few tough days in there? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's funny because I mean, right now I'm, I'm actually working up in, um, Grand Prairie, um, one week out of a month working as a locum veterinarian for a practice up there of, of a veterinarian who I helped get started in Canada. He's from Germany. He, he came to Canada in 2003 and established his own practice in 2007. And I work at his practice now. Um, but anyway, we were talking about this and, and I, I, I mean, it's, it's in my case, in my situation that the two that I, I remember the most clearly were, uh, patients where I made a mistake and the mistake cost the patient their lives. Um, that's, that's tough. That's, that's, that's really tough. And, and, and it, it affects you as a professional. Um, and the challenge is you have to be able, you, you don't forget it because you can't, but at the same time, you have to be able to shake it off and move on because the longer you carry it with you and it, the longer it impacts you negatively to be able to serve other patients, you're, you're hampering your ability to be your best for that next patient. And the patients keep coming. You know I mean, yeah, you've had a rough go or yeah, you've had a bad, you know, you've had a bad situation. But the next day, there's still 40 patients to see or, or you know, or, you, or there's 200 cows to preg check or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, during calving season, uh, you know, every, I don't know, every maybe three or four years, you'd make a decision um, that you can pull, that you're pretty sure you can pull a calf and the calf hip locks and, and dies. Um, you've made a decision, you've made a judgment call that you think that calf will be delivered. Okay. And, you know, we, we would always stop and we turn to the farmer and we'd say, you know, look, I'm pretty sure we can get this calf by pulling. Do you want me to keep going? Or would you rather just stop and do a C-section at this point? And most of the time the farmers would say, whatever you think, doc, if you think we, you can pull it, you go ahead. You know, and, and if you were thinking, yeah, you know, we can't. And every once in a while, you're wrong. And, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think that I can probably count on less than the fingers on one hand the number of times that had happened. But I can remember a couple of them when it did happen, and you feel pretty crappy at the end of it because you got a dead calf, you got a cow that's down that may or may not get back up again, and you know you've got a guy who's hauled that cow in to see you. And uh, trusted your judgment and trusted your, you know, your clinical abilities and, and you've let them down. And, you know, um, thankfully, uh, most of our clients were always very, um, they were a pretty forgiving lot. I mean, I tried to always make sure there wasn't a whole lot they had to forgive me for. But they were a very... Um, generous lot in terms of if, if something didn't go a hundred percent, right, they would say, Hey, you did your best. You know, so th- yeah, those are the, those are the crappy days. What's the oddest animal you've had <laughs> through the door? Oh gosh. Um, uh, well, one time I, I did a list of all the animals that I have helped deliver something from like babies, right? Okay. So, I mean, obviously cat dogs and cats and cattle and sheep and goats, Llamas, um, lots of foalings, chinchillas. Um, what else? 
Anyway, it's it's fairly long. Um, the circus was in town once. They asked me to come over and look at an elephant. That was different. Um, elephants have foot problems. Like that's their biggest thing. Captive elephants, the biggest issues they have are foot problems, and especially with their toenails. I think they are. Um, and they can get a lot of infections in between there and all the rest of it. And so this, the, the elephant handler called me over, and I'm sort of, I don't know, you know. But you know, we we looked after it. Um, uh, yeah, just, 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 I mean, that had to have been a cool day. Oh, it was, it hey. was, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was cool. It was different. I mean, I, um, I, I, I got called in to, um, to, uh, do the export certification. Uh, there was a fellow, a, a wild boar producer up in the uh, Bonneville area who had sold his entire herd to wild boar hunt farm in California. Well, there's a lot of paperwork that that has to go through. You have to take blood samples. You have to put ear tags in. You have to do this, that, and the other thing. And he had sold every pig on the place from the little suckling pig that was like eight pounds to the 450-pound wild boars that had tusks like bananas, right? And we had to take a blood sample on each and every one of these little gaffers. Uh, and in some, in some cases, rather big gaffers. And, and so that was... You know, it, 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 was, it was neat. At the time we were doing it, we, we maybe didn't think it was quite so neat. But when you think back, you know, you say, well, that was, that was kind of cool. Never a dull day. Uh, well, uh, you know, one of the beauties of mixed practice is, is that no two days are identical. No two days are the same. I mean, there's one day you'll be doing this and then the next day all of a sudden you're out in the field and doing that and, and you might be on emergency work and, and you get called for, you know, something totally weird and bizarre um you know i i sometimes think of the number of different things that i have pulled out of the intestine of dogs that have swallowed stuff that they really shouldn't have swallowed um articles of clothing that sometimes had to be explained a little bit between husbands and wives and i just sort of said hey i i just do the veterinary work you you deal with the rest of that stuff yourself um but um yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating profession. Veterinary medicine is, is, is a fascinating profession. I'm, I'm glad to be back doing it. I, I, I don't know that I'd want to be doing full-time practice again, but um, I do my one week a month up in uh, Grand Prairie, and uh, uh, it's, it's fun. Uh, you, you have to call on a lot of skills and abilities and, and, and um, you know, your experience, you know, after seeing patients for 30 years, you you know, say, wait a minute, that's just like that dog that I saw, you know, you know that, that, that's like, you know, just like that cat or whatever it was. Yeah. It's fun. You've been married to your wife for 36 years, Allison, mm -hmm. correct? Yep. What, uh, what is, what was it about Allison maybe in the beginning? And then furthermore, 36 years is no short stint. What is it? What has made it work? Uh, no. Um, so, uh, so Allison was a year ahead of me at vet school. Um, oh, we the had, old, older girl. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, she is. But I mean, she was a year ahead of me at vet school. And um, <laughs> uh, we, we actually sort of met, but not really um, at U of A when we were both doing pre-vet. Um, uh, I was in first year. She was already in second year. Um, we had a pre-vet club at the U of A. Uh, but it was on, it always met on Thursday nights and I was teaching music on Thursday nights, so I couldn't go to the meetings, but my sister would quite often go for me because she'd be usually on campus because she's in medicine. 
And she would go to the meetings for me. And so she actually met Allison sort of before I did. Um, and then Allison got into vet school. And so then I was still in second year. And then when I went over to Saskatoon, Allison was a year ahead of me. She was in second year. Um, she, she was the little redheaded girl. I was Charlie Brown and she was the little redheaded girl. I mean, I mean, she, she had this gorgeous hair, head of red hair. And, uh, and, and I mean, I knew she was really smart. And I knew that she was, you know, from Alberta. And I, you know, I, I had chance to talk to her at a few different events and that sort of thing. And I always thought, wow, you know, she's, she's smart and she's funny and she's gorgeous and da, 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 da. And, um, so, I mean, we, we started, we started going out and, uh, in vet school and, uh, we got married, uh, about a year after I had graduated and, and we came to Lloydminster and it became really clear very early on that our relationship was going to be a partnership that 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 we each had strengths um that you know we would do better if we we tried to you know have those strengths mesh as opposed to run into each other i mean there are a lot of things that we both are good at and we we had to figure out ways to uh make sure that we could both you know, shine in our own ways, doing those things well. And there were some things that we we're both not very good at at all. Like, um, you know, there, there's just some things we just aren't particularly good at. And, and we, we, we knew, we knew well enough that we, you know, we would just, you know, help each other out in those areas. And then there's of course, all the areas that she's way, way better at than I am. And, and there's the one or two areas that I'm better at than she is. I mean, but, but it, it was a partnership. So our whole relationship's been a partnership. Raising our kids has been a partnership. Running our veterinary practice has been a partnership. Um, the political life was was a huge partnership. And, and I mean, um, I mean, the comment I got from people all the time was, "You have the most amazing wife. You know, she's incredible." And I go, "I know that." I know that. I don't know. I mean, to tell you a funny story. Early on after I was elected, my constituency association did this strategic planning thing, right? You know, where you have you know, these whiteboards and you have tear sheets and stuff stuck to the wall. And one of the things that they said is, okay, what, put down what the best things about your, your representative are or your MLA are, right? And so, you know, some people would write one thing or the other thing. And then somebody wrote, has a great wife. <laughs> You know, has a great wife. And and if you agreed with that statement, instead of writing it down on your piece of paper, you're supposed to just put a check mark, right? Has a great wife was by far and away the number one biggest attribute, benefit beneficial attribute that I have. Better than being a public speaking organization, blah, blah, and all that other no, stuff. Richard no, Richard Stark. Rich, great Richard, wife. Richard Starkey has a great wife. You know, that that was that was the whole deal. And 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 you know, so I, I sort of said to the group, I said, so what you're saying is that the best way that I could assure of being reelected is actually croak and let my wife run in a, in a by-election in my stead <laughs> because she'd win in a landslide. And they all kind of said, well, yeah, she would, but we're not saying you should do that, but yeah, she would. And so, no, Allison, um, you know, we, we've, we've been, like I say, we've been this partnership. We've done everything together. Um uh, you know, we, we make, we make, you know, any important decisions we make are yeah. always decisions we make together. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unbelievably blessed that, you know, she's been on this journey with me. I mean, we, uh, 
we, uh, you know, like I say, we've been together now for, uh, uh, we started going out in, in 1980. So we've been together for like 41 years. Um, but it's, uh, t- it's, uh, 36 years that we've been married. And, uh, uh, I, 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 uh, it's been, a, it's been great. It's been really good. Have I been mispronouncing your name the entire time? Uh, I think so, but I mean, I didn't want to. Starkey. It. Stark, yeah. it is Starkey, yeah. That is Starkey. Well, you, you jackass, well, you're supposed to tell uh, me. It's all good. It's all good. I've been calling you Richard Stark for an hour and a half you, you, now. You know what? But, but you know what, Sean? I'll, I'll be for, is it that long? Good grief. Uh, no, I, I'll tell Sean, I get that all the time. So I, I, I don't really worry about it because, I mean, the English way of pronouncing that name is Stark. You, you don't pronounce the E. The reason I pronounce the E is because that's the German. It, it literally, if I, you're saying it the German way. You know your say, family's going to listen to this, though. Yeah, they're no, going to be like, okay. yeah, if you were saying, Stark. If you were saying it the German way, you'd say, <laughs> you'd say, starke, starke. And I mean, in German, that word means the strong one, the one who is strong. Stark means strong. And, and but my, I, I remember my mom and dad uh, saying, when you, Tell people how to say your names. Tell them it's Starkey and that we pronounce it. We have anglicized it, but it's Starkey. So, hey, don't worry about it. I mean, I I think I got called Richard Stark at, at ceremonies where, like, you know, heads of state and all the rest of it were there. and I. I, I so I'm doing bad, but I'm not doing that bad. You know bad, what? Eh? You know what? You, you've got tons of company, Sean. Don't <laughs> don't sweat it. Don't sweat it at all. you got you got tons and tons of company. Um, yeah, it's all good. How about kids? I assume um, just the, the when you talk about family and how you treated your company like family, how your parents brought you and how yep. they focused on yep. their kids. What was having kids like? Uh, well, it's 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 the best on the job learning program that mankind's ever come up with. I, I mean, uh, uh, we were blessed with two sons. Um, our, our oldest, Roland, was born in 1988. And uh, Alistair followed two years later in, in 1990. Um, both of, Al, Allison was sicker than a dog the whole time for both pregnancies. I mean, I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable. Like, I mean, she started getting sick with Roland, I mean, before we even knew for sure that she was pregnant. And, and I mean, she, she spent a bunch of both pregnancies in the hospital because she would get so dehydrated from throwing up and all her stuff. So the pregnancies were hard on her. But um, fortunately, uh, thankfully, we, we, you know, b- both boys were delivered healthy and normal and strong and all the rest of it. And uh, we were heavily, heavily invested in them. Uh, uh, we got stuff they got involved with, we got involved with. I mean, they were both in beavers and cubs, and Allison was a beaver and cub leader. Uh, they were both they both played soccer. I coached soccer. Um, Alistair, uh, Roland eventually went into play basketball for a couple of years. The lousy basketball player, the lousiest basketball player ever. I was just an assistant coach because I couldn't help those boys. But, I mean, I, I was assistant coach on the basketball team. I... Uh, when Alistair became involved in the speed skating, I eventually became the head speed skating coach for our club. And uh, uh, so we were heavily invested. I mean, the other thing we were heavily invested in our boys is that, that we, we made the decision um, early on uh, that we would homeschool them. So you homeschooled? They, we homeschooled both of them from K to 12. Really? Yeah. Why? why? Um, well, uh, I mean, the, the decision was a difficult one um, uh, because, like, Allison's mom's a teacher, and uh, my mom actually had received 
training back in Germany as, in, in it, as a teacher as well. But Allison's mom had been a teacher before, uh, before she retired from the teaching profession. Um, uh, the thing that really, what we were looking at it, we had j- we'd moved out to our acreage north of Lloydminster in 1992. So when Roland, two years later in 1994, when Roland was six, we knew we were going to have to make a decision about, okay, well, what school would he go to? Because there was going to be busing involved, right? And we actually kind of liked the idea of him going to Kitscotty better than going to the schools in Lloyd. But the Kitscotty, just what we found out about the busing was, was it was going to be close to an hour each way on the bus every day. And we weren't so sure about that. But what really tipped it was um, uh, Allison was talking to uh, someone we knew who was a teacher, who we really respected. She was a really, you know, very well thought of teacher and was just talking about that Roland was he's a very intelligent little boy. Uh, I mean, he taught himself to read at age two. Um, you know, he, he changed all the passwords on our computer when he was three. Luckily, he, he just used his name as the new password, which was good, but he changed our passwords. He figured out how to do that. I mean, he's always been very good at computer stuff and, 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 and he reads voraciously, uh, and reads at a rate that is, is just scary. He read, um, he read the entire Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I think that's the, the fifth book in the Harry Potter series. He read it in a day, 700 some odd pages. He read it in a day. So anyway, so Roland was right from the get-go. We knew Roland was was special, a precocious young man. Yeah. And and so Allison was talking and, and, you know, was talking to the teacher and, and the teacher said, well, you know, Roland must be getting to school age pretty soon. And and Allison said, yeah, and we're, you know, we're struggling with, you know, how to deal with it because, you know, he's, 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 you know, you don't want to call your own kid gifted, but he, he's, he's got, you know, he's really quite. In how many special. two-year-olds do you know that have taught themselves well, how to read? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. And, um, and, and the, this, this lady, I mean, Allison told me the story. She says, I wasn't there. This lady told Allison, you know, I used to really enjoy having students like Roland. But now they're just a bother. And, you know, imagine yourself as a mother. You've just heard somebody you really like and respect as a teacher has said this to you. You know, and Allison came home. She was crying. And I said, you know, what, what, what's going on? What's, what's the problem? And she said, well, you know, this is what, you know, this, this lady said. And I said, wow. Oh, my goodness. And Allison said, I'm going to look into homeschooling. And I said, Okay, I, I said, you know, find out what you can find out about it. And I mean, and some of the things we found out about homeschooling, we weren't necessarily all that crazy about. But we, we did like the idea of the autonomy it gave. We did like the idea of, you know, being able to teach the student, teach both of our boys in their own learning styles. Because Roland and Alistair have completely divergent learning styles. You know, one of them is very visual and the other one's very tactile. You have to hold it, see it, feel it. And, you know, and, and, and Allison, as she does with everything, she, she poured herself into becoming a teaching professional, understanding different teaching styles. And she would go to the conferences and she would pick up curriculum and, and that sort of thing, especially in the younger years, you know, when they were, you know, when they were, you know, like from grades, you know, one to six type thing. And every year at the end of the year, we'd ask, we'd ask the boys, look, you know, do you want to go to a regular school? Because if you do, you just say the word and we'll, we'll stop this homeschooling. And they 
said every year, they said, no, I want to keep going with homeschooling. We like it. And I mean, it gave us an opportunity um, when they got a little older. Um, we took a year off. We took a year sabbatical from our practice and lived in Germany for a year. Um, tough to do that when they're in a regular school situation, but homeschooling, you know, we just packed the books with us and we did homeschool while we were there. And that really, I mean, the Germans had a hard time wrapping their head around that because they don't have homeschooling in Germany. It's illegal in Germany. You, really? You, you cannot homeschool your children in Germany. It's, it's against the law. And they're truancy laws that are actually pretty, pretty strict. And, and I remember like we used to send Alistair to the bakery to go get fresh buns every morning for our breakfast. And one day he gets accosted by this elderly lady who says, you know, why aren't you in school? Why aren't you, it's a school day. Why aren't you in school? And Alistair by that time had learned enough German that he knew exactly what she was saying, but he just do the, ah, uh, English only thing. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, uh, no, we homeschooled throughout when Alistair, um, uh, in, in, in like when he got to the point where he was pretty, um, pretty competitive in speed skating and had to go to speed skating competitions all over the place, homeschooling meant that we could go to Winnipeg or Milwaukee or, you know, Vancouver or Calgary or wherever we had to go and, and, you know, spend, you know, several days at speed skating training camps and that sort of thing. And Alistair would just bring his books and he could study in the evenings and that sort of thing. So. It's not for everyone, and I tell everybody this. It's homeschooling is for sure not for everyone, but for us and for our family and for our sons, it, it was the right choice. Um, and, uh, I mean, and, and it, there are trade-offs for sure. I mean, they don't have necessarily the big circle of school friends that they went to, um, but they do have some very close friends that they met through other um, organizations they got involved in. They, they joined the same youth parliament that I was involved with back in the 70s they they joined it when they were of of age to join it and actually Alistair's wife he met through youth parliament um so you know it, it, that was that was kind of cool and um yeah you know they're 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 both they're both they're both doing doing okay um uh, Roland was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 15 and um diabetes is a, is a difficult disease it's it's a very challenging disease and and we've um, in, in recent months kind of gotten a, a, to know even more about how challenging it is to, to keep your blood sugars well controlled. And, and, and I know that that has been a challenge for him. Um, but uh, he, he's, he's, like I say, he's doing his best that he can with it. And Alistair, um, he took a poli-sci degree. He went to UFC. He went to UFC to skate because he was speed skating. And he skated competitively for four years, and he really enjoyed it. He got just sort of a notch below the national team. He, he, you know, we, we, Canada has a lot of really, really good speed skaters. And, uh, but he enjoyed it, and he made some wonderful friends through speed skating. They, they, that was his community in Calgary. And then when he decided he'd had enough competition, that was fine, and he finished his degree in uh, 2015 and poli sci and got married two days later uh, and his wife uh, Sarah is a chef and uh, the two of them bought this coffee shop in Lacombe in 2019 uh, and they've been running that coffee shop since then so um, he's not necessarily doing political science things and Roland's degree was in uh, he took a, he had a BA in philosophy from the U of S and then he, he took a couple of years of a theology degree at the Lutheran seminary in Edmonton and then he ran into some health problems and wasn't able to complete that 
but uh, Roland uh, uh, did did uh, like I say he had a, an interesting university career too, and uh, they're 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 both doing okay. You know, as we slowly wind down here, uh, I was reading back through the notes, and one of the things that caught my eye was. You know, you wanted to talk about some of the things you've learned through the different things, community leader, business owner, elected official. But it's the last line, the importance of integrity. Mm-hmm. Maybe as we slowly wind this down, Richard, you could talk that line and just explain it. Well, uh, to me, and integrity has been defined a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. But, um, you know, I, I, I think of it sort of it, integrity is doing the right thing even when nobody's looking. Integrity is, is when you not only don't lie to somebody else, but when you don't lie to yourself. And, uh, you know, grounded with, you know, some of the lessons that I learned from my parents growing up, uh, you know, probably one of the most important things we always learned was, was, you know, to, to absolutely be honest, treat people with respect, do the best job you can and be true to yourself. You absolutely have to be true to yourself. And, uh, that was something that we did, um, you know, throughout our time in veterinary practice. I mean, uh, any business there, you can get yourself into some ethical tie, you know, you can tie yourself up into little ethical knots because there's, in some cases, there's the challenge between keeping your business afloat and, you know, profitable and doing things completely according to the book, which might end up being a little bit less profitable. Well, in our situation, I mean, it was really never much of a question. I mean, we, we, we didn't cut corners. We, we didn't make any, we didn't take any ethical shortcuts. We refused to do that. And that's always served us well. Um, did we make, did we maybe make as much, much money as we could have? No. Did we make enough money that, you know, we were okay, did okay? Yes. So it was never a problem. So, um, and, and so, you know, whether we're talking about then, you know, translating that into uh, my work in politics or when, when I was on the Health Foundation board or you know, when I was coaching kids in, in soccer or in speed skating or you know, my involvement even in city council. The thing that was always important for me is that you, um, you stuck to your principles and you stuck to the principles even if sometimes that put you in a position where you were unpopular or where you were in a position where you were sort of going against the grain. So, uh, you know, probably, or at least most people would say the, the most specific example of that was after I lost the PC leadership in, in March of 2017, um, you know, at, the, at that point, I, I said to Mr. Kenny, who had who'd won the leadership, I said, look, you know, people have spoken, you've won the leadership, I'm on your team, you, you know, I want to work with you and we want to make this the best party we can make it. I won't, you know, I'm not going to try to stand in your way here. Um, but let me help you. You know, uh, there are things that I can, I think, pr- you know, information I can give you, insights I can give you that I think will make this party better. And he assured me at the time that that would be the case. But it became really clearly apparent in the following, in the ensuing months, uh, that, that, that that was not his intention. Uh, and I was essentially locked out of any further discussions that were going on with regards to merging with the Wild Rose Party or any of the other things. And so when, when the vote was taken in July of 2017 that, that these two parties, the Wild Rose and the Progressive Conservatives, that they would form a new party, this UCP party, 
I, I, I announced that I would not cross the floor in all, for all intents and purposes, that I would not join this new party because I was elected as a progressive conservative. This new party, I mean, nobody knew what their policies were going to be. Nobody knew what direction they were going to be. Nobody knew what they stood for, essentially. And I said, look, I've been elected as a progressive conservative. I'm going to continue to represent the people that elected me as a progressive conservative. And if that means that, you know, come the next election when there is no progressive conservative party that I don't run again, then so be it. Um, you know, I've said repeatedly that, that if the only thing, the only thing that is motivating you, the things you do in, in politics are getting reelected, if whatever you do is with an eye towards getting reelected, you're doing things for the wrong reason. You're, you're making decisions based on your own self-interest, not based on what's best for the people you're representing. So I made the decision in July of 2017 that I was not going to join the UCP caucus. Um, it was kind of funny because um, it was one of those decisions where the people who liked you applauded the decision and the people who didn't like you applauded the decision because they said, good, good riddance. We don't want the guy anyway. You know, we don't want that guy in our new party. He would just stay in our new party. He's too progressive. So, I mean, it was one of those weird times in politics where you made everybody happy. But there was, there was a lot of significant nastiness from people when I decided not to join the new party. And, and I said, look, this is, that's, that's a decision I've made based on, you know, what I consider to be my principles and the principles that I ran on. And, and, you know, and as, as things then played out and as, as things happened with this new party and now that we've seen what they're like for the first two years that they've been an elected government, um, I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not absolutely confirmed for me in my mind that I made the right decision for me. I, I could not be a part of that party. I don't support that party today. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a party that is, you know, it's not, it's not a party I can support. I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, you know, integrity means that you, you have to at all times respect, uh, respect the rules that are set out and, 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 and govern yourself accordingly. And one of the concerns I have is that it seems that, you know, if, you know, one of the books that, that I would write is, is nice guys don't always finish last. But there, there has been a trend, and I mean, one of the things that was involved with that trend was when, when Mr. Trump was elected south of the border, that people who act in a way that has integrity, that has ethics, that, that, that is, you know, the right way of doing things, that they were getting left behind. You know, it, to, to me, it was, it, it was just unbelievable that, that uh, you know, in some situations you had people getting elected who, who, you know, was very clearly were not, you know, didn't conduct their business in a matter that was ethical, didn't conduct their personal relationships in a manner that was ethical, and, and, and that, you know, could be pointed out time and again were simply lying to people. You know, it was something I, I just would refuse to do, you know, um, and, and was, was sometimes called out for, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, if, if I, if anybody ever tried to suggest to me, well, you know, maybe you just have to tell a little white lie. And I said, that's not going to happen. I said, that's just not going to happen. If you're asking me to lie, I said, that's not going to happen. I said, if I misspeak or say something that is wrong or incorrect because I don't know the facts, 
that's fine. That can happen to anybody. And as soon as I know the facts, I will correct myself very publicly if what I said the first time was public. But I'm not going to, you know, say something that I know at the time I'm saying it is untrue. And, um, I, I, you know, I had some colleagues in, in the political world that said, well, that's going to be a problem for you. And I said, no, if you think it's okay, then it's a problem for you. You know, that's who, that's who's got a problem here. So, um, no, it's well put. Yeah, no, that, that, that's like I say, and, and you know, doing work in Lloyd, working in Lloydminster, having a business in Lloydminster. And I talked about some of these people before we had the wonderful benefit of watching people with incredible integrity run their businesses and run them and they were very successful and they were very respected. And again, I use the examples of people like Ken Kyle or uh, Dave McCaw or Ray Nelson. You know, these are people that, that ran businesses and were successful, but were always known for their ethics, right? Yeah. Well, I want to... <sighs> I don't think you could leave it off any better than that. Okay. I, I appreciate you coming in today and, and talking a little bit about, well, humoring me and where, where the conversation led. Sure. And talking about your life and, and career and everything else in between. So thanks again, uh, Mr. Starkey, for coming in. No problem. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for joining us today. If you just stumbled on the show, please click subscribe. Then scroll to the bottom and rate and leave a review. I promise it helps. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, we will have a new guest sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. Until next time.